The opinions presented on The Healthy Steps Show are the evidence-based opinions of Dr. Fred Harvey, the callers, and his guests. These are not the opinions of the staff, the volunteers, or the board of WMNF. The information provided on the show is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. There is no implied patient-physician relationship in these calls. The nature of the calls is educational and informational only. And good morning, my dear friends and fellow compatriots of the Healthy Steps Radio Show. I cannot thank you enough for keeping your radio dial tuned to WMNF Tampa. Dr. Harvey is joined today by Dr. Bryce Applebaum, the 2022 recipient of the Future of Health Award. He recently had given a speech to the top functional medicine practitioners from around the world at the Mindshare Leadership Summit in Scottsdale, Arizona. The title of his speech was The Misdiagnosis and Misopportunities of Vision, Why Healthcare Has It All Wrong About the Eyes. If you have any medical questions related to today's topic on eyes and vision, you are encouraged to participate by calling 813-239-9663 or sending an email to dj at wmnf.org. You can also text us at 813-433-0885. Welcome to the show, Dr. Applebaum. I've done my little pump-up teaser lead here, so I'll let Dr. Harvey introduce you and start the show. And, of course, good Monday morning to you, Dr. Harvey. So today we're going to talk about eyes and vision. Looking at Dr. Applebaum's website, I see that he offers a holistic approach to family vision and visual wellness, specializing in the diagnosis and treatment of behavioral, sensory motor, neuro-rehabilitative, and learning-related problems in people of all ages, ranging from infants to senior citizens. That sounds a wee bit different than the experience that I just had at Warby Parker. So I'm fascinated. Tell me more. Dr. Harvey, I think your mic is off. circumstances beyond our control we are unable to continue the broadcast evidently there's some difficulty with our field transmission however we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity i'm sorry to announce that we are experiencing technical difficulties at present further information will be remade when available and i apologize for any inconvenience caused Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I've got you. Okay. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, so uh, my name is Dr. Bryce Applebaum. I'm a neurooptometrist, board certified in vision therapy. And I, I appreciate the introduction. Pleasure to be here today. Uh, in my opinion, healthcare really does have it all wrong about the eyes. Uh, most doctors are solely focused on the pursuit of 2020 eyesight, but Eyesight and vision are, are separate entities, and I'm here today to empower the listeners and share that and, and hopefully uh, give a lot of information on uh, the functional side of, of vision and how well our eyes, brain, and body can work together with the right intention. All right, and how long have you been uh, in the field? Uh, it's coming up on my 14th year, and uh, very, very lucky to have joined a practice that uh, my father started decades ago. Uh, that did a lot of vision therapy, a lot of neurooptometry, uh, but we've been adding a lot to the practice in terms of concussion and brain injury rehab and a lot of sports vision enhancement and a lot of uh, visual developmental delays that are impacting reading, learning, and academics for lots of kids and adults. 
Um, and so we we kind of start where all the other eye doctors and then where you described Warby Parker, where they leave off uh, to look at how well the eyes work together as a team and how well they can focus and converge and track and process information and essentially uh, how we derive meaning from the world around us and, and direct the appropriate action. You said, I think I can direct oh, some appropriate action. Finally figured out what was going wrong there. Sorry, folks. Well, we're darn <laughs> um, glad to have you there. That's actually the first snafu of any kind of major amount we've had on this. I'm so happy. That's four years of pretty good success. So uh, uh, welcome, Bryce. Sorry I wasn't here to greet you. Um, but uh, again, thanks to all the listeners for making this Tampa's favorite health talk show. And welcome, Bryce. And thank you, Bill, for stepping in there and starting the process. So, Bryce, uh, it was great to meet you at the Mindshare. And um, I think... Uh, you, what you're doing just excites me. It's just really cool. I mean, you look at vision a totally different way. And and I I have two for many years. When I was about 20, I think, I picked up a book called The Yoga of Perfect Eyesight. And I've been doing those exercises for years. And periodically, I don't wear glasses because I just don't feel the need because it's uh, like you're going to talk to us about there's something about actual visual acuity and then there's visual perception and actual the whole combination of how we see is much more than just 2020 eyesight. It's just so cool to see the things that you do and the programs that you offer are just really exciting. But so um, I guess what what is the difference between eyesight and vision? Great starting point. Uh, so we all know about 2020 eyesight. Eyesight is simply the ability to see letters <coughs> in a letter chart, whether that's in an eye exam or when you're driving to see what's uh, on a sign or for a, a student to be able to see what the teacher writes on the board in the classroom. Eyesight is what we have glasses for. Vision is far more complex. Vision is brain and vision is how our brain tells our eyes what to do and how our brain processes that information and then knows how to filter and use that information for our advantage to be able to react, to be able to read, to be able to think, to be able to understand our sense of self and space. And unfortunately, so many eye doctors just look at eyesight and eye health, which absolutely are important. Uh, but how we use our visual system for our activities of daily living and for life, that's really the vision side. So hopefully the big take home for all the listeners today is eyesight and vision are different entities and they need to be treated as such. So true. I've been using a test called the functional acuity test in my office for many years. It's a really good way of actually assessing the uh, uh, actual vision and whether our brain is actually doing uh, what it needs to do to tell us what the eyes are actually seeing. Uh, do you use that kind of testing? Uh, so I, I use similar testing, di di different uh, specific ones, but absolutely. I mean, we need to know how we use the information together that our eyes send to our brain. And so something like depth perception, you know, and our ability to see in 3D, that's something that we're not born with. And through our life experiences, we developed the ability to use our eyes together. We developed the ability to create that wiring that supports being able to catch a ball, being able to go up and down stairs, being able to drive and be confident. Um, and, and that's really the, the functional side of how we use our eyes is how our brain understands that information and, and uh, can process to know what to do with that information. 
Yeah, I told you previously, I have some uh, visual problems and astigmatism that pro changes my field of vision, my depth. And and I told you that I quit baseball because I couldn't see where the ball was coming from. Um, I don't doubt that there's some training that could actually help somebody with astigmatism to figure out that depth perception. Absolutely. I mean, astigmatism by definition means uh, the front surface of the eye is shaped more like a football than a basketball, let's say. But essentially, that's a, that's a symptom in terms of the eyesight that's compromised from the astigmatism. What about what our brain does with that information? And very often, that can create a distorted image for the brain to interpret or inequality between right eye and left eye. And then this rivalry or this competition over sensory input emerges where the brain sometimes has to pick an eye and not use both together. So it's almost as if trying to catch a ball, you can see the ball in different positions in space. But what, a, and it's one thing to be able to understand where the ball is, but how about how we prepare our body to respond to where it will be? And that's mm -hmm. really what separates good athletes from elite athletes is that ability to visually react, use peripheral vision and central vision simultaneously to be able to, uh, slow down the ball to be able to prepare the body more quickly to react. Indeed. So, so the training that you bring up is, is interesting because, you know, we, we go to the gym for our bodies, we train yes. different systems, yet so many people think that's not possible for the visual system and for the mm -hmm. eyes. And absolutely, that's just something that is, uh, is not accurate. So why does healthcare have it all wrong about the eyes? Give us some depth on that. Great question. So to speak about what I, what I said initially, I mean, we're, we're all trained in school to intervene once disease, disease has already occurred. And we're all trained to be able to uh, get the right combination of lenses or prism to allow somebody to see those small letters. Mm -hmm. But the functional side of things here, um, you know, my profession, neurooptometry or developmental optometry has been around for hundreds of years. Yet there's so few of us with this specialty. And as the world evolves and as research and literature comes out to support what what we can do in terms of training our eyes and training our eye brain body integration it almost has separated a lot of the doctors who do this versus those who have not because vision therapy which is what we specialize in which is essentially physical therapy for the brain through the eyes it's only kind of glanced over in, in schools and you need a separate residency and fellowship and lots of uh, internal push to be able to continue to evolve your mindset as a practitioner to then be able to offer what this can provide our patients and, and our colleagues and our friends. Um, but I, I think our profession is, is held back by uh, not having the groundbreaking research and literature to support the efficacy of what we do until recently. Yes. And then once that gets put into place, we're in a new place already in terms of how we've fine-tuned the uh, the programs and the philosophy and the training that's really required. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're on parallel paths because you're basically a functional eye doctor and I'm a functional medical doctor and and we're both heretics to the system essentially because they don't hear the message that we're trying to give them and they misinterpret when they look at what we're doing, they misinterpret it and 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 think of it as something different. And I think they, for my part, they 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 put me in a box of of the same box that they are, and that is they treat illness with mm -hmm. certain tools. And mm -hmm. what I do is I help people transcend the illness using different tools. And so I'm not treating the illness because the illness will go away if I treat the person. And you're the same way. I believe that if you 
you fully believe that when you do vision therapy, you functionally change the person permanently. And I, I know this is happening. It's really very cool stuff. Such parallel paths. Um, and, and that's what I refer to myself as, as a functional eye doctor. You know, so many, especially for kids, where we know that all visual skills are learned skills. You know, for a child who doesn't have the visual skills in place to support what's being asked of them in the classroom, because screens and technology are being introduced at earlier and earlier ages than ever before, and kids are often being asked to read at earlier and earlier ages, in many cases, if the child isn't visually ready, if they haven't developed the support system, the visual foundation to meet those demands, then symptoms emerge like losing their place with reading or skipping words or lines or struggling with reading or not being able to show their strengths in the classroom in terms of intelligence and potential. And the medical world very often will put labels on these types of behaviors like ADD or ADHD or dyslexia. Yes, that is our skill in Western medicine. Label right? it, bl name Label it, blame it, it tame it. You got to get a pill to tame it. Take a <laughs> cluster hey. of symptoms and just put, put something on it. Exactly. But I need to get a cluster of uh, listeners calling in here. So I just wanted to remind everybody we are on Tampa's favorite radio station, WMNF 88.5. I'm going to jack it on up a little bit more and say it's the best little radio station in the world. And I'll follow it with, you are listening to the Healthy Steps Radio Show with Dr. Fred Harvey here on WMNF Tampa. And I can't thank you enough for being here. Dr. Harvey's guest today is Dr. Bryce Applebaum, and they're going to enlighten you about sight and vision and vision therapy. And we encourage you to give a call, and Greg's waiting on by. So give us a jingle at 813-239-9663 or send us emails to dj at wmnf.org. You can also text us at 813-433-0885. Back to you there, doctors. Well, um, actually... We have some emails already, so here's a question for you, Bryce. Good morning, gentlemen. I am very curious about floaters in my left eye, just full of them. I can tilt my head back and forth and see them rotate in the fluid. Uh, my right eye has none. Is there a safe treatment? Or is fresh pineapple juice a good answer? I don't know about the pineapple juice, but I will definitely start experimenting with that to see. Um, you bring up a great point with floaters. I would say there's two main causes of floaters, floaters. One would be anatomical and one would be functional. So anatomical would be the goo that is inside of our eye. It's called the vitreous. It gives our eye the shape that holds form. As we get older, it becomes uh, more liquefied and less gelatinous. And so what often happens is the floaters are little attachment sites from where that goo is attached to the inner layer of the eye, the retina. And as it separates, hopefully it doesn't pull on the retina and cause anything scary or serious to happen. But you see these little blobs that are um, a lot easier to notice on a bright sunny day or against a white background. And you're seeing kind of the shadow of that. Um, with floaters, there are treatments out there with laser and, and mm -hmm. other types of more invasive treatments. Most people are not too happy with those treatments. Um, but from the functional side, Floaters can be a sign of a, a cortical hypersensitivity or essentially the brain not being able to process all the sensory input that's around. Uh, there's a particular condition called visual snow, which is really common after a head injury or after, um, you know, being put under with anesthesia. And in that type of scenario, 
the brain, again, can't take the information the eyes are sending it to know what to do with it. And, and there are lots of treatments for floaters with um, certain tints or filters in glasses. There's one particular one called FL41, which is like a yellowish tint. Definitely ask your neurologist, neurooptometrist uh, about that. Vision therapy often can help decrease the annoyingness of floaters and, and in many cases eliminate it. And then also from the functional side, a lot of kids who struggle learning to read with pretty substantial global visual developmental delays experience floaters when they're reading. And as the brain becomes more hyper aware and different areas of, of the brain are able to communicate to each other more efficiently, very often those floaters go away. That's excellent. Um, we have callers on the line. Oh, we got a full bank of them now. I've got uh, Paul, John, Bonnie, and Gino. Sounds like a... Uh a band. Let's go to uh, Paul here. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. What have you what got you for have? us? Yeah, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. You're so welcome. Hey, I I got, uh, I'm 64, and my left eye decided it was going to kind of hang it up. I mean, I couldn't drive. I couldn't do anything. So I went into uh, St. Luke's and had my eye check, eyes checked, and I ended up getting cataract and... Uh, stigmatism uh taken care of and they they told me that my close vision would not be as good but my close vision is horrible if i'm in enough sunlight i can see just fine up close but like a computer screen and reading it just doesn't work but my but my regular vision far away vision i'm sitting in my truck right now i can see just as plain as day so is there some kind of exercises or something I can do to help my short vision? Glad you bring this up here. So uh, with cataract surgery, it's usually the lens on the inside of the eye. They remove it. They put a new implant in. And very often it corrects a certain distance. Most common is the is far away distance. But then up close becomes even more of a challenge because you're seeing HD clear in the distance. And then up close when that much more focus is needed, it becomes hard to use those muscles. Um, all of us, as we get older, there's anatomical changes that occur um, just based off of the, the muscles in our eyes. They become more rigid and less flexible. But also, just like any muscle in our body, if we stop using them, we lose voluntary control over those systems. So very often, becoming dependent on lenses in general allows for an adaptation. And then we need something stronger to maintain that same clarity. And then we go down this vicious cycle. Uh, so there are programs, uh, there, there is individualized training that can be done in terms of vision therapy to help slow down the progression, in some cases even stop it for, for the short term. Um, I've recently launched a an online program called ScreenFit, which is a vision wellness program that trains and, re and rehabilitates the visual skills and abilities necessary uh, to support high visual demands of screen usage. And it's kind of designed to teach you how to relieve the visual stress that mainly technology places on our visual system on a daily basis, but essentially all near visual demands. Um, and it helps empower uh, the individual with tools to for healthy visual habits and efficient use of their eyes as a coordinated team. Uh, you can find that at screenfit.com. We have a lot of patients who've gone through that and uh, have found that they hadn't had to increase their their readers after that point. And, and many who've said they don't even feel as dependent on their readers after that. So a great program, and, and there's lots out there that can be done in terms of individualized programs to figure out exactly what's causing 
Uh, maybe that rivalry you mentioned, one eye having a little more difficulty than the than the other, um, but also to raise your awareness what you're doing so you can learn how to self-correct and self-monitor and make these these symptoms no longer options. That's great. What about in the bright light I can see really well up close? If I go outside and sit in my backyard with a Sudoku puzzle, I can mm-hmm. see it like just almost like normal. But if I go into the living room and sit in the couch... <clears throat> That means that means you got to spend more time outside. Exactly. <laughs> the uh, the focusing system is a circular muscle, and it's a sphincter muscle. It's behind our pupil. So when we look close, the pupil gets small. When we look far, the pupil gets big. Same thing happens with light. When we go outside, pupil gets small, and we go in the dark room, pupil gets big. You're essentially going outside and getting a little bit of a, of a nudge to that ciliary body, that focusing muscle, helping it almost lock in and engage. And then there's less distortion in the periphery where it's easier for you to discriminate or lock in on that sweet spot of our eyesight, our macula. So very often that's a, a sign that functionally a lot can be done to help with flexibility and stamina with the right uh, training in place. That's great. That's great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Have a good day. All righty. We got Bonnie on the line, and it's a staticky line, so I'm going to ask for everyone's patience here. But good morning, Bonnie. Yes, good morning. Uh, My question concerns uh, the visual development of children, toddlers, preschoolers, and so forth with computers. Um, I I was just wondering uh, the difficulties or problems or concerns uh you know in this day and age and and in the last years you know computer information parents feel a lot of information can come through computers and they want their kids to get all this information so younger and younger and younger children are are in front of the computers um i wanted to get your reaction to that and when they're playing computer games and there's lights and flashing and sound does that then alarm the brain to sort of shut down because it feels there's danger and even impede learning. Um, and I was also interested in, in a little bit on brain and eye dominance, but you don't have to go to that one. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. So, Bonnie, I could talk for literally days about all of this. So I'm going to try and give a, a quick version of uh, what has occurred in the last three years post-COVID when so many of us are being... Uh, forced to stare at screens and, and use technology more than ever before. Um, and, and obviously screens aren't going anywhere, but there's so much we can do to offset the influence that these devices have on our children. Uh, as humans, we're not meant to be staring at screens. You know, we're meant to be having these scanning eye movements in the distance. But now that these are occurring up close with this bright light and this high contrast and, and, two-dimensional artificial plane, it's causing functional vision problems to dramatically increase, uh, which has been occurring for years, especially in countries that value education and technology, because when we're under visual stress and we don't have the tools in place to meet those demands from the stress, we either adapt or we avoid. Avoidance is something that's not really happening with screens these days because of the dopamine hit that comes and from so many games and social media platforms and just uh, wanting us to come back. But the, you know, the, the adaptations, that's really the root cause of, of the majority of vision problems is adapting to this near stress 
distance blur becomes the symptom because we are locked in up close. And then myopia or nearsightedness starts to emerge from our environment. And that's something that has dramatically increased as well in the last few years. Um, and, and, you know, I think there are signs that this can be an issue for a child in particular when they're maybe not able to communicate as, as well uh, what they're experiencing. It can be heavy eyes, dry eyes, headaches, trouble sleeping, eye fatigue, sleep disturbances, trouble focusing, but especially for kids, uh, inability to attend, you know, and having so much challenge focusing up close that images occur or somebody comes in the room in the periphery and it's, we can't take in what's around us without looking up and, and taking in that information or in a classroom setting, having it be so hard to focus our eyes that we can't then focus our mind to maintain those same uh, demands that come with reading. And so we're seeing a lot of avoidance with reading, a lot of reluctance with reading, a lot of, like we spoke about before, overly prescribed medications for uh, symptoms that can be very hidden unless they, you know, you see a developmental or neurooptometrist who can rule out these challenges, but screens aren't going anywhere. Um, you know, screen fits a great program to help with that. Vision therapy is a great program to help with that. I think taking a ton of breaks, visual breaks with anyone on screens is crucial. Um, I always say at least the 20-20-20 rule, which means at least every 20 minutes, take a break for at least 20 seconds and look at something 20 feet away, essentially disengage the visual system and then come back. But for our children who are homeschooled and on screens or for the parents who are using screens as, as a babysitter, which obviously there's a time and place, but we should not be on screens, uh, especially if at the young age, um, you know, I, I think breaks can be really helpful. And I always recommend um, for, for parents to really limit the screen time for their kids. You know, if a child is under 18 months, screen should really not be in the equation unless it's video chatting with a loved one that they're not able to see. And, you know, if, if they're 18 to 24 months, same thing, limit it, not more than 30 minutes without taking a break and, and make it be high quality information. If they're two to five years old, you know, not more than an hour, again, high quality. And American Academy, Academy of Pediatrics says not more than two hours per day if you're older than five or six. Mm -hmm. But I would say, again, everything in moderation, balance as much time as we're spending on screens as at least that amount of time outdoors. And unfortunately, we're creating a generation of, of kids where, you know, when we were all children, our parents had to drag us in from being outside. And now parents are having to drag their kids outside because they're stuck playing video games and on screens forever. So if you can't yeah. tell I'm very passionate about this, I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. But so much can be done uh, to help raise awareness and, and be more mindful. I have a question for you. When is your master class on kids and screens? It's already being being uh, created right now. And, and this is the world we're, we're emerging into. And, and you know, I, I think... We, we don't want to be on our front porch kind of raising our fist and being upset. We want to figure out, all right, how do we not disrupt the social, emotional, and visual development that is being disrupted right now uh, to be able to, to take this new scenario and really thrive with it? So true. I think we have another caller. Actually, we've got three. We've got Gino, Sarah, and Barbara. And... Um don't want to be selfish, but I'm going to invite more people on into this. So give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send your emails to dj at wmnf.org. 
And we'll go to Gino, who's been very patient with us. Good morning, Gino. Yes, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, yes. I am 60 years old, and I just happen to be in the computer world. Uh, but um, I want to ask about uh, dyslexia. dyslexia. Uh, I realized that I had it back in uh, when I was in college in the early 80s, uh, but I had never heard of it. But uh, it didn't. It didn't truly impede my um, um, learning, but it did put a little put a little damper in it. Is is dyslexia a common disease, eye disease, or whatever in um, in in black males? I had heard that, but I was I, I wasn't sure of it. But I actually was listening to a. a, a uh, Looking at our Cosby show at that time, I was young, and uh, when Cosby show was out, I was in college, in my early twenties, and uh, that's when I realized, well, that's what I have right there. I see the words backwards, and then when I focus, they do it does correct itself. But when I, I initially look at some words, they would be backwards or scrambled, and I have to focus, and then they would unscramble themselves. And plus, I have the same thing that first call I have, too. With now, because I'm 60 now, my eyes, uh, in the light, I see better. Uh, but in the dark, yes, it's very, very hard for me to see a word. Great, great point to, to, of discussion here. So when you look up dyslexia in the, in the dictionary, it'll say difficulty reading words. I would argue that 99% of the patients I work with have difficulty reading words, but because of treatable hidden functional vision problems that have likely been mislabeled as dyslexia in the past. You know, there's so much goes into reading where with tracking our eyes and focusing our eyes and converging our eyes and processing that information and having all the important centers of the brain communicate effectively to be able to take all those different letters and turn them into a story in our mind that allows us to really uh, engage with reading and, and uh, get the takeaway that comes with reading. I think more often than not, somebody who has difficulty keeping their place or losing focus or um, having the words move on the page or not being able to comprehend what they're reading, again, like we've been talking about, labels get put on those behaviors and people who struggle with reading or those who reverse letters or numbers very often are just labeled as dyslexic. But I, I would say that in my opinion, dyslexia is an incomplete diagnosis until functional vision problems have been ruled out. And you brought up a couple comments that lead me to think that there's probably at a minimum a visual component contributing to your struggles with reading because you said when you, you have difficulty focusing and it corrects itself, you know, very often that's just you not having the feedback of what your visual system is doing, how to coordinate the eyes together as a team and how the brain can then um, integrate and process that information. So similar to our discussion on ADD and ADHD, dyslexia, it's a label to that describes behaviors and so much goes into reading at a minimum uh, find a developmental or neurooptometrist who can rule out vision as a culprit or a contributing factor to that struggle that you're noticing in life. Okay, yeah. But one thing about it, if I read in my mind and don't read out loud, I can read much better. 
But if I go to read out loud and uh, reading the same thing, I would have to read about two or three times. I'm, I'm going to double down on what I just said there. So that's difficulty with your auditory and visual systems integrating sensory input and processing together. So exactly what you're describing very often we'll see with kids who prefer to be read to rather than reading on their own and are reading being read to by their parents and have wonderful comprehension. But then when they're asked to make those eye movements and read on their own, no chance. Right. And I think for you to be able to assign language to what your visual system is providing your brain, it's almost like your eyes and brain are working at different sp speeds, at least from what it sounds like. Yeah. So depending on where you live, there's a wonderful organization, covd.org. And that's the international organization that board certifies doctor in vision therapy and rehabilitation. There's a locate a doctor section. You can type in your address or your zip code and can set a search radius. And you can find all the providers that are at least nearby. Um, and if they have FCOVD after the doctor's name, that means they're board certified in vision therapy and rehabilitation. But anybody on that website would be a great person to at least go to um, for an evaluation. And, and myself, I see a lot of people from out of state and out of country. There are other doctors like me as well who are really specialists in this area and, and see people for more thorough evaluations. But you owe it to yourself to, to look at the functional visual system because I imagine life when you could read for pleasure and really get enjoyment out of uh, the written word. Okay. All right. Thank you. Absolutely. You know, I think it's fascinating. Um, I already had ADD in the trash can diagnosis file, but now you've put dyslexia right there with IBS. And it's like <laughs> these things are, are not real diagnoses. And I'm so glad that this is a great insight. Thank you. Um, who's on the line, Bill? All right. Fair question. We got Sarah from Palm Harbor. Good morning, Sarah. Hi. <clears throat> Good morning. Um, I have. Good morning. I have macular degeneration that runs strongly in my family. And my dad is big into supplements. And um, he recommended I should take a thing called AREDS2. Are you familiar with that? I absolutely am. Okay. Um, well, well, I'll let you finish so that I can comment. I, I guess I just wanted to see what you thought about that or if there was something else that you would recommend in preventative care. Absolutely. There's uh, so much there that can be done with nutrition and supplements to really enhance overall well wellness systemically, but especially the eyes. Um, I would say in general, the most important uh, supplements we can be providing our eyes would be green leafy vegetables that have a lot of zeaxanthine and lutein in them, omega-3s, which are wonderful for uh, so many aspects of overall health, but especially for our tear film being more viscous so our own tears don't evaporate as quickly. Uh, CoQ10, eggs, oysters, vitamins A, C and E, antioxidants, carrots. There's so many things that are great for the eyes. What you uh, discussed with uh, the AREDS2, that is a, a one formula of a supplement that was devised many years ago from um, lots of, from a study specifically on macular degeneration. Macula is that sweet spot of eyesight that we talked about, which is if you think about a bullseye, that's that absolute center of the bullseye. And very often, uh, that area becomes, uh, damaged as we age based off of, uh, chemicals, toxins, UV, 
Um, if a smoker is more likely, somebody who's Caucasian is more likely to develop it. A family history is is very is much more likely to develop it. But there's a lot of really good information coming out now suggesting that uh, macular degeneration is almost like a type three diabetes. It, it's a uh, systemic response to all of this in inflammation that occurs from the standard American diet, whether that's sugar or um, carbohydrate or just really poor quality foods. And, and Dr. Fred could speak, uh, I'm sure, very well on, on this area. But you just really, you just hit a, a nail there because when you say this is related to diabetes, diabetes type three, that's what we call Alzheimer's. And, and so we're looking at this insulin resistance spectrum as being a toxicity problem. And one other thing about this, the diabetes epidemic appears to be caused by pesticides. Toxins are the source for all of this. So back to my uh, shtick, detox is really key. And all these great vegetables Bryce has been talking about are really about detoxing your body because all these great phytochemicals help to support that. Okay. So Sarah, I think this is lighting a fire under you to say, you know, if you have a family history and, and your, your father's on your case to try and do what you can, Absolutely, that supplement would be helpful. There's so many vision supplements out there that are also really, really good. Um, and feel free to reach out to me. Happy to share my go-tos for those. Um, but also, really, there really are better quality ones than Aireds too. They did a good job. It's got a clinical research, but we can kick that up 10 notches by talking to Dr. Bryce and see what it is that he has to offer. Great. Thank you. Absolutely. <clears throat> well, thank you there, Sarah. Let's go to uh, Barbara in Tampa. Good morning, Barbara. Barbara? Hello? There she is. What have you got uh, for us today? All right. Um, I have a couple of issues. Um, my daughter was diagnosed with ADD many years ago, and you were talking about how that might be related to her vision and not because she, she doesn't particularly like taking tests and doesn't do well on them. Um, so that's interesting. And my granddaughter is having problems with her eye getting stuck or one of her eyes gets stuck yes. sort of and it kind of the pupil goes towards her nose and stays like that for a little while. And they've used a method where they she had to wear a patch for periods of time every day for an extended amount of time, but now she's still having that issue and her physician is saying they might have to um, do surgery and I'm not sure how we could avoid that. Do you have any ideas? I do, Barbara. I'm so glad you called in with this information. I'm going to start with the second part and then we'll come back to the first part. So all children are born without the ability for the eyes to work together as a team. And then through our life experiences, we develop the ability to use our eyes as one unit. And if there's global developmental delays with the motor system, and we don't have the motor foundation to then support using our eyes together, that's even more likely. Uh, the, the eye turn you spoke of, the medical term for that is called strabismus. Strabismus is, is a brain problem manifesting in the eyes. So it's essentially the eyes not working well together and you, and, um, she has developed a way to not have to use both eyes by having one eye drift in or out or up or down. Very, very often that has nothing to do with the strength or the length of the eye muscles. It has to do with coordination. 
And so essentially learning for her to then uh, re-engage and learn what it feels like and looks like and the depth that ensues when the eyes are working together versus when they're not. And just like nobody would have uh, knee surgery without having physical therapy before or after, I'm a strong believer nobody should have eye muscle surgery without vision therapy first and, and then also after. Eye muscle surgery, any honest, good surgeon would tell you that the ideal scenario is a cosmetic cure it's almost impossible for a functional cure because the functional cure requires learning to take place to develop depth perception. You also brought up patching. Um, patching has been in place for hundreds of years. And if you could take it, patching is based off of the understanding or the misunderstanding that there's a good eye and a bad eye. So let's cover up the good eye. So the bad eye then has to focus and work. And we now have research to support that amblyopia or that lazy eye with one eye not seeing as well as the other is a brain problem manifesting through the eyes. So it doesn't require covering up a good eye so that the bad eye has to work because already we have a fragile coordination. We then cover up the good eye and then the, the fragile eye teaming system actually gets worse in many cases. So we now know that there's advanced treatment for amblyopia with vision therapy or neurooptometric rehabilitation. There's a wonderful website, ambliopiaproject.com and another one, strabismusproject.com, which are great resources uh, with all the research literature and all the latest information that's out there. Um, but I, I would say on top of the uh, terrible implications that patching can have on a child's uh, confidence and emotional development and just going through life with one eye covered, literally wearing an eye patch, uh, there, the ceiling is dramatically higher when we can teach the brain, we can arrange the conditions appropriately to teach the brain how to pick the eye that's not functioning as well in the presence of the other eye and then equalize the skills between both eyes so that when the both eyes are open, the brain doesn't have a choice over which one to use because they're both functioning the same, and then the brain can use them as one cohesive unit. Hopefully that's helpful. And then what you mentioned about ADD, um, to really simplify things, if you can think about our, our eye muscle systems, we have two types of eye muscles, inside muscles and outside muscles. Inside muscles control how our eyes focus. That's how we make something clear and keep it clear. Outside muscles control where our eyes point, the coordination of the eyes as one unit. In a normal, healthy brain, the those two systems are providing the same feedback on where to point and where to focus, and we see things single and clear. But to really simplify it, if it's significant effort needed to use those systems, to then track the eyes, to then be able to scan across a page, then it's going to be a lot more effort to use the eyes together as a team compared to if that was not the case. And if you can't visually focus, how can you cognitively focus compared to if that was not the case? So I don't know if you've been listening earlier to this today, but you know, a, a child who um, likes to be read to rather than reading on their own, or a child who in the classroom gives the appearance that they're not paying attention, but in fact, they're just not looking at the teacher a lot, looking at the page because they're relying on their auditory processing to provide them what their visual processing is not able to do. Those are great signs that vision is likely a, a contributing factor and, and treatable and something that can help um, really avoid unnecessary struggling. And that's 
that's the huge challenge with all of this is the visual demands increase every year of life for a child. If we don't have the, the tools in place to meet those demands, the gap of where that child is operating and then where they're, function, where they're functioning and then where they should be functioning, that gap gets larger. And so much of uh, a negative association with reading, learning, and academics can be from a vision problem that is hidden until you recognize, wow, this is something right in front of us. We just didn't know to look for it. Is auditory processing disorder related to this because they had diagnosed my daughter with that, but then after the testing, they didn't offer any support. It was like they, you know, made their money off of testing and then mm. just dropped the ball. I mean, these doctors, a lot of them, what do, what do they go to school for? What do you think make all this money for if they're just total idiots? Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I hear you, Barbara. So, Think of uh, sensory integration dysfunction or sensory processing disorder, which again are labels that are very often uh, just put on developmental challenges as the brain not being able to filter and use all the sensory input simultaneously. Vision is our dominant sensory system. It's estimated that over 80% of what's learned in the classroom environment comes from the visual processing of information. So your, her being diagnosed with an auditory processing disorder at a minimum is letting you know that her brain is having difficulty putting together all the input from all of her senses. And very often a child like that would then rely on tactile feedback to gain more information. So maybe she's, she's very, she's t very touchy or she needs to really um, use other systems to touch the world for maybe what her visual system or her auditory system is not providing. So occupational therapy can be really effective. That's sensory integration based in, in nature. Vision therapy can be really effective. There's also different treatment options out there for auditory processing challenges. But I would agree the diagnosis, that's one thing, but what are we gonna do about it? How are we gonna make life easier? And, and I think that's where our attention really needs to be shifting in terms of the right type of proven treatments out there to allow somebody uh, to, to achieve closer to their their potential. I know I just have one more question. What was the name of the organization for AMBLYOSIS? Close, A-M-B-L-Y-O-P-I-A. So amblyopiaproject.com. That'll bring you to Vision Help, V-I-S-I-O-N-H-E-L-P. Visionhelp.com is a phenomenal organization I'm a part of. It comprises uh, about 10 practices around the country who all specialize at the same global level. We're all professors at universities with really the sole purpose of raising awareness so that we can avoid unnecessary struggling. So that's a great place to go to. And then the one I spoke about before to, to find a doctor uh, potentially nearby would be covd.org. And that's the College of Optometrists and Vision Development, that international organization that board certifies doctors in, in vision therapy and rehabilitation. Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. My pleasure. You too. All righty, that was great. Now let's go to, uh, we got Juan in Sarasota with a question for us. Good morning, Juan. Uh, good morning. Uh, can you hear me? We can, yes, but it's, we there's can. a lot of static on the line. I believe that's on our end, but go ahead. Yes. Um, uh, good morning, doctors. Uh, question for Dr. Bright. So um, I struggle a lot with light, whether it's natural sunlight or artificial light or even just the color white. 
Uh, for example, when I'm like I'm trying to read, um, if the the page is too too white, um, I feel like any light that's in the room is reflected, and I, I can't read the words. My eyes are too sensitive. Sometimes I have to squint even indoors. Um, I even resorted to using sunglasses just to read a book because the page is so white that I that the words don't pop off. Um, any insights for me? And I'll, I'll take my my answer off the air. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So Juan, it, it sounds like what you're describing is very consistent with somebody who's had a head injury that has impacted the ability for the brain to process information. And even in the absence of a head injury, you know, light sensitivity is a, a nice reflection of autonomic nervous system functioning or the fight or flight response that we all uh, have functioning, hopefully at a, a, a unconscious level. But after a head injury, it becomes like a seesaw shifting back and forth between that fight or flight. And what that means from a vision standpoint is we're either using central visual processing or peripheral visual processing, but not using those two together. And that's a really common profile that occurs with a uh, mild or major head injury that can significantly impact our ability uh, to take in the world around us. You know, I, I would say about two thirds of the neurons entering our brain actually originate from our eyes. And there's more areas of our brain dedicated to processing vision than all of our other senses combined. So it's kind of impossible to have a head injury and not have vision be impacted. It's just a matter of at what level. And again, this isn't eyesight, the ability to see. This is vision, the ability to process information. So in, in those cases, um, definitely there's a lot that can be done with filters and lenses and prism and performance lenses. And if you're describing light sensitivity and struggling with white, I would imagine screen engagement is not so fun for you. Um, so I have a, a website that was recently launched called concussionclear.com. Great informative website that just talks about vision and all the problems from the visual standpoint of what occur after a head injury. Um, but I think at a minimum, it could be the type of a thing that exploring tints or filters, even in glasses, could help make the world a lot more comfortable for you. That is great advice, Dr. Bryce. Um, I was wondering, you know, both of us are sitting here looking at screens talking about this, and there have been at least three um, uh, emails. And last week, someone actually asked a question about it. What, what's your view on blue light glasses? Great question. Uh, so, Dr. Fred, you're a functional medicine practitioner. I, I kind of joke and say that um, blue light is almost like gluten. <laughs> you know, for all of us, we, we really, gluten creates an inflammatory response, so there's way better options. Yes. Some people who become gluten-free, it's life-changing in terms of gut health, regularity, all, all the areas that are compromised. But then others, you know, you, no issue when, when things are blocked. So blue light in general is not bad for us. Blue light comes in sunlight and blue light's good for us in many ways, but that shorter high, shorter wavelength, high energy uh, light that is blasted to us from screens, it's, it's artificial in nature. We now have research to show that at a minimum, there's compelling evidence that it disrupts our circadian rhythms and may even be a driving force behind metabolic disorders and even some cancers. Um, and, and we now know it can be related to um, increased risk for depression, diabetes, cardiovascular problems. So there's these cells in the back of our eye that respond to this light 
that are responsible for releasing, let's say, melatonin, which is going to help us sleep at night. Um, and, and so, you know, I think in general, blue light is that is if we're going to be spending a significant amount of time on screens, we should be blocking a good portion of that blue light. That can be done with a filter in glasses. There's lots of different tiers. You want to find a pair that has the largest wavelength, uh, the largest range that is blocked rather than just, you know, the the less expensive over-the-counter ones that would say, oh, we're only going to block, let's say, 450 nanometers. You know, we want something that's a much larger range than that. And, you know, if these cells are overstimulated, it can cause a lot of disruption, a lot of symptoms, migraines, headaches, um, eye strain, fatigue, trouble focusing. So, again, we, we should be doing everything in moderation, but I, I think a blue light filter can be a, can at a minimum be helpful. Adjusting contrast and brightness on the screen at a minimum can be helpful. Taking a lot of visual breaks is hugely helpful for many people. Uh, but this blue light is, is something that uh, has gotten a lot of controversy in, in the medical world because it's not necessarily going to disrupt structure. But in terms of function, I think there's no denying that uh, for many people that can make it very hard to engage with a screen. And function is where you and I work. So um, really, that was a great way to sum up an amazing show. What great information. Thank you, Dr. Bryce Applebaum, for joining us. And I have posted to the Healthy Steps uh, uh, um, blog um, your contacts, ScreenFit, Aries Academy, Applebaum Vision, Concussion Clear. People need to get in touch with more functional optometrists like you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you there very much there, Dr. Applebaum. And uh, any last words from you there, uh, Dr. Harvey? Our next show is going to be uh, focused on cancer. Uh, the medical director of the lab, uh, Grail Lab, or that, for the gallery test, a single test to look at 17, I believe, uh, different cancers. Really cool test. We'll be having some great information next week. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be great, as always. And before we... Uh, I'd like to thank Irene and Greg for answering the phones today. And if, so until next Monday at 10 o'clock, I'd like to say thank you, Dr. Harvey, and to all of our listeners and to all our callers. It was an incredibly busy call today. So take care, stay healthy. Y'all are the greatest. Yeah. Well, I don't know what my issue is here. Here comes you have been listening to the healthy steps radio show with dr fred harvey here on wmnf tampa Coming right on up is 5 Minutes of NPR News, and then get ready for the Sustainable Living Show hosted by the Cracker Jack team of Kenny Coogan and Annie Ellis. And until next Monday at 10 a.m., thank you for supporting and listening to the Healthy Steps Radio Show with Dr. Fred Harvey here on WMNF Tampa, your community-conscious radio station. Stay safe, stay thoughtful, and know that you are loved. <laughs>